Take your Bibles now and go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. We read then, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The initial characteristic we see regarding the mind of Christ is that though Christ held the form of God, he did not reach or grasp at to be equal with God. It is also this characteristic of Christ that differs so greatly from what both Satan and Adam and Eve grasped at, which was equality with God. Satan seeking to be like the Most High and Adam and Eve seeking to know as God. Hence, it was Jesus not seeking to be superior to God that separated him from not only the men of the earth, but also the devil and his fallen angels. Men's greatest sin, and apparently also the spirits that were cast out of heaven, has always been to think themselves greater than the Lord, yea, superior to the Lord in wisdom, knowledge, and discernment. Fallen beings, because of pride, thinking themselves equal to God, as to how not only God should deal with man, but how also God should both judge and rule heaven and earth. Therefore, in essence, in spite of their sin nature, men today still believe themselves to be equal and on the same level as God. This is why they will condemn the Lord when they think He deals improperly with them and murmur against Him, despise His laws, and generally reject any of His rule. Most, therefore, greatly believe because of their human pride, that their righteousness is more than God's. In Job 35, 2, we read, Thinkest thou this to be right, that thou saidest, My righteousness is more than God's. Man's insolence, so great at times, that not even reproving God seems for them to be wrong. Job 40, verses 1 and 2, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Yet completely contrary to sinful man is the divine nature of the Son of God, who though he carried God's form, did not in any way regard himself as equal with God. And though he was one with the Father, still Christ did not try to in any way usurp authority from God. This is seen in how Jesus lived in subjection to God and completely obeyed the will of God in his life. John 8, 29. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for in the reason I do always those things that please him. God was always with the Son because the Son always did the will of the Father. It is this behavior of remaining in God's will and seeking to live a life that pleased God that gave Christ his heavenly position in heaven. Because Jesus was subject, God exalted his Son. And because Jesus did God's will, God did not forsake his Son. Seeking to live our lives as being pleasing to the Lord, having as its main fruit also 
God remaining with us in hardships, trials, tribulation, and even death. Living our lives by doing things that are always in God's will, having as its reward God never leaving us. Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, and this is Jesus speaking, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Philippians 2, 7 now. And again, in reference to Christ, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Instead of trying to be equal with God and trying to exalt himself above the Father, Jesus took on the form of a servant. Hence, instead of seeking to lift himself as equal to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ lowered himself to the level of man, so as to do the will of God as a servant on this earth. This was a tremendous act of humility, as Jesus allowed himself to be crucified for man's sins, because first he was willing to become a man. Therefore, instead of grasping at self-exaltation, Jesus suffered torturous and painful body humiliation in order to carry out as a servant God's will to pour out his soul into death. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And this is the reason. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Nowhere can you see the divinity of the Son of God more than when he was willing to take on the form of a human servant to do the will of God. Again, rather than seeking to grasp at equality with God, Jesus in doing God's will became the servant of men in order to redeem men from their sinful state. Truly divine beings are humble beings. True divinity also evidenced, as in the life of Jesus Christ, by spiritual humility. Likewise, those who have Christ's nature will prefer the position of a servant much more than the title of a master. As any man who will truly follow the Lord Jesus will seek to walk in the same attitude and mind as his Lord by then not grasping at equality with God, but rather taking on the position of a servant in order to advance a knowledge of God to others. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, we read, Take my yoke, and this is our Lord speaking, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Learn what? For I am meek and lowly in heart. And by doing this, you shall find rest in your souls. Here Christ reveals his own holy character, that he is meek and lowly in heart. The Jameis Fawcett Brown commentary on this, take my yoke upon you, the yoke of subjection to Jesus, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. As Christ's willingness to empty himself to the uttermost, of his father's requirements was the spring of ineffable repose to his own spirit. 
So in the same track does he invite all to follow him with the assurance of the same experience, end quote. A believer's rest will also be found when instead of exalting himself, he rather puts on Christ's yoke and becomes like Christ, a servant to both God and Christ. It is therefore only when we come to know Christ's character by walking also in his ways and putting on his yoke that we shall discover rest in the deepest part of our souls. Hebrews uh, 4, 9, there therefore remains or there remains a rest to the people of God. But this rest will only come when God's people put on the mind of Christ because none shall enter true spiritual rest who do not through humility take on the mind of Christ. Barnes on this verse. It is easier to be a Christian than a sinner. And of all the yokes ever imposed on people, that of the Redeemer is the lightest, end quote. Though Christ has been exalted above all, still the character of his being is meek and lowly. And though Jesus has received from God power over heaven and earth, still he is ever the same meek and lowly creature that walked the earth. Meekness is also seen to be that which will characterize all those truly led by the Spirit of God. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which are upon the face of the earth. It is thus the reformed nature of those who will do great works for God to manifest the character of God's Son. As meekness and humility are the true signs of both spiritual maturity and heavenly divinity. Matthew 18, 4. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, it is not the proud who shall inherit the earth, but the meek and the humble. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And now in verse 8 of Philippians 2. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. All faith shall be tried. And the Lord Jesus Christ's faith, in order to secure our redemption, was no different. God tested Abraham, Genesis 22.1, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. God tested Israel, Deuteronomy 8.2. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know or to discover what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. So also in regards to Israel we read, Judges 2.22, that through them I may prove Israel, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. Thus the Lord will try men's faith to prove if it is genuine or not by observing if men will obey his word. And since faith's obedience was true of he who is referred to as the father of faith, Abraham, it must of necessity also be true for the author of faith, God's son, Jesus Christ. That not only must have Jesus declared that he came to die for men's sins, but then also he needed to carry out the act itself. 
True faith will therefore always possess obedience to do God's will. It is also by Christ's faith that we are saved. The faith that therefore saves the sinner is a faith that proved itself subject to God even to the death of the cross. Hence, men are not only saved through faith, they are saved because of the faith of Christ himself. For without Jesus trusting God unto death, we could not have ever been saved by his death. Thus, it was not simply that Jesus died for sin, but that he gave his life because of faith and trust in God. Galatians 2.16 Knowing the man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The believer is justified in God's sight by the faith of Jesus Christ. And this faith was exhibited by Jesus going to the cross and dying upon it. Christ's faith to remain subject to God's will unto death is that which allows God to save us from death. When then the believer believes upon the Son of God, who himself believed and trusted God unto death, his faith, the believer's faith, is counted as righteousness. Philippians 3.9 And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And just as Jesus' faith was tried and proved as genuine, so also if we believe and obey Christ's words, our faith shall be reckoned as real as well. The scripture states that faith without works is dead, James 2.22, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Therefore, whenever there is true faith, obedience to God's will will follow it. This was proven true of Christ by him going to the cross, and this will be proven true by us when we hear and obey Christ's words. John 14, 15. Jesus speaking, If you love me, keep my commandments. The opposite, though, of a walk of being under subjection to God and having a humble heart that is pliable to do God's will is when men grasp at things that God has not purposed for their lives. This is seen in Miriam and Aaron's rebellion. It is also seen in Korah and the 250 princes in their religious insurrection. It is thus pride and men thinking that they are bigger than they are that causes them to grasp for things of God not purposed for them. The opposite of subjection is rebellion. Therefore, those who grasp at positions or titles that are not theirs, through also the motive of self-exaltation, rebel against the God who has set the order of all things. For it is God who has determined how and in what manner men should serve Him. This is true in life, but this is even more true in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it has pleased Him. Since God has set every man in the body of Christ as He wills, those who reject where God has set them reject both the wisdom and sovereignty of God. Hence, when men grasp at things above what God has willed for their life, it will show their distaste for God's will ruling their life. Only the proud, therefore, will seek to be above the gifts that God has given them.
If a man refuses to put on the mind of Christ, it is only because then what rules him is pride. See, if a man is not humble, he will be proud. And if a man seeks not the mind of Christ by pursuing spiritual humility, he will follow the path of the devil. 1 Timothy 3.6 Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation or the same judgment as the devil. Those thus, both in the church and outside it, if lifted up with pride, will fall in the same condemnation as the devil. Ellicott on this verse. Lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. The Greek word rendered here, being lifted up, would be more happily Englished by being clouded or deluded. It marks the pride or vanity engendered by the finding himself in a position of authority for which no previous training experience has fitted him. Such a novice would be in intimate danger of falling into the judgment passed by God upon the devil whose fall was owing to the same blinding effect of pride, end quote. Pride, no doubt, clouds, blinds, and deludes men so much that ultimately their selfish ambition will be met with personal destruction, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. He, therefore, who follows pride as his navigator, and source for making decisions, will find it leads him to his own misery. A contrast between the mind of Christ, which is humility, and pride is seen in the writing of Thomas Terence. Pride and Humility by Thomas A. Terence. Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. So said the late R.W. Stopp, a remarkably humble man of great abilities and accomplishments who is often said to have made the greatest impact for Christ of anyone in the 20th century. His succinct statement about pride and humility goes straight to the heart of what the Bible teaches about the deadly root of our sins and sorrows. C.S. Lewis, another top contender for having had the greatest impact for Christ in the 20th century, called pride the greatest sin. Every believer should read his chapter by that title in Mere Christianity. There Lewis said, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice, It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. If this sounds like exaggeration, it will help us to know that Lewis is not simply giving us his private opinion, but summarizing the thinking of great saints through the ages. Augustine and Aquinas both taught that pride was the root of sin. Likewise, Calvin, Luther, and many others. Make no mistake about it, pride is the great sin. It is the devil's most effective and destructive tool. Why do the great spiritual leaders, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant alike, unite around this conviction 
because it is so clearly and solidly taught in Scripture. Pride first appears in the Bible in Genesis 3, where we see the devil, that proud spirit, as John Doan described him, using pride as the avenue by which to seduce our first parents. Taking the form of a servant, his approach was simple yet deadly. First, he arrogantly contradicted what God had said to Eve about eating the forbidden fruit and charged God with lying. This shocking rejection of God's word introduced Eve to the hitherto unknown possibility of unbelief and was intended to arouse doubt in her mind about the truthfulness and reliability of God. In the next breath, the devil drew her into deeper deception by contending that God's reason for lying was to keep her from enjoying all the possibilities inherent in being godlike. This clever ploy was aimed at undermining her confidence in the goodness and love of God and arousing the desire to become as God. The desire to lift up and exalt ourselves beyond our place as God's creature lies at the heart of pride. As Eve, in her now confused and deceived state of mind, considered the possibilities, her desire to become godlike grew stronger she began to look at the forbidden fruit in a new light as something attractive to the eyes and pleasant to the touch. Desire increased, giving rise to rationalization and a corresponding erosion of the will to resist and to say no. Finally weakened by unbelief, enticed by pride, and ensnared by self-deception, she opted for autonomy and disobeyed God's command. In just a few deft moves, the devil was able to use pride to bring about Eve's downfall and plunge the human race into spiritual ruin. This ancient but all too familiar process confronts each of us daily. Each person is tempted when he was lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death, James 1, 14 through 15. From this point on in the Bible, we see the outworking of pride and unbelief in the affairs of individuals, families, nations, and cultures. As people lose or suppress the knowledge of God, spiritual darkness grows and a psychological inversion occurs. In their thinking, God becomes smaller and they become larger. The center of gravity in their mental lives shifts from God to themselves. They become the center of their world and God is conveniently moved to the periphery, either through denial of His existence or distortion of His character. Self-importance and godless self-confidence grow stronger. The cycle that follows is familiar. People exalt themselves against God and over others. Pride increases. Arrogant and or abusive behavior ensues and people suffer. There are also many biblical examples of pride and its consequences in the lives of individuals and they offer valuable lessons for our own lives.
Often their stories are self-contained in one chapter and make for easy reading. One of the more notable examples from the Old Testament is that of Uzziah, who was a believer when he became king of Judah at age 16. He set his heart to seek God and put himself under the spiritual mentorship of Zechariah. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper, 2 Chronicles 26.5. As a result, he acquired wealth and also became politically and militarily powerful. Then things changed. His fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, 26, 15, and 16. What happened? There are hints in the text that at some point on the road to the top, he stopped seeking the Lord and the spiritual mentoring of Zechariah. This suggests a lessening dependence on God and a growing reliance upon himself and his own strength and wisdom. History shows at every point how easy it is for pride to increase as we become stronger, more successful, more prosperous, and more recognized in our endeavors. In fact, anything real or imagined that elevates us above others can be a platform for pride. Ironically, this is true even when these things come as a result of God's blessings. As a result of all his blessings, Uzziah, rather than humbling himself in thanksgiving to God, began to think more highly of himself than he should have and developed an exaggerated sense of his own importance and abilities. This pride of heart led to presumption before God and brought very serious consequences upon him, illustrating the biblical warnings that pride leads to disgrace, Proverbs 11.2, and that pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16.18. I encourage you to read and meditate on Uzziah's full story in 2 Chronicles 26. The stories of Haman and Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 4, also offer valuable insights into pride and are well worth reading. Commenting on the revival in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1737, Jonathan Edwards said, The first and worst cause of errors that abound in our day and age is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. Pride is the main handle by which he is hold of Christian persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. Spiritual pride is the main spring, or at least the main support of all other errors. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. The well-known story of the Pharisee and the tax collector can help us recognize our own spiritual pride. It tells of a much-despised tax collector and a self-righteous Pharisee who went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee proceeds to commend himself to God because of his careful observance of the law and to look down with scornful contempt on the sinful tax collector. The Pharisee speaking, 
God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Notice in his prayer that his focus is not really on God at all, but on how good he is and how bad others are. Here is pride wrapped in the cloak of religion and giving it a bad name. The tax collector is so painfully aware of his sins and unworthiness before God that he cannot even lift his eyes as a stand in the back of the temple, far from the altar. Pounding his breast in sorrowful contrition over his sins, he can manage only the desperate plea, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In the Greek text, it actually reads, the sinner. His focus is very much on his own sins, not the sins of others, and especially on his need for God's mercy. In a surprising reversal of expectation, Jesus says that God answered the tax collector's prayer, not the Pharisee's. Then he concludes with his main point, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It would be easy to conclude that pride is the special problem of those who are rich, powerful, successful, famous, or self-righteous. But that is wrong. It takes many shapes and forms and affects all of us to some degree. The widespread chronic preoccupation with self in American culture, for example, is rooted in pride and can give rise to or intensify our emotional problems. As a famous Harvard psychologist observed, listen to this, any neurotic is living a life which in some respects is extreme in its self-centeredness. The region of his misery represents a complete preoccupation with himself. The very nature of the neurotic disorder is tied to pride. If the sufferer is hypersensitive, resentful, captious, he may be indicating a fear that he will not appear to advantage in competitive situations where he wants to show his worth. If he is chronically indecisive, he is showing fear that he may do the wrong thing and be discredited. If he is overscrupulous and self-critical, he may be endeavoring to show how praiseworthy he really is. Thus, most neuroses are from the point of view of religion mixed with the sin of pride. Much more could be said about pride, but space fails us. Let's sum up the biblical perspective and move on. Pride can be summarized as an attitude of self-sufficiency, self-importance, and self-exaltation in relation to God. Towards others, it is an attitude of contempt and indifference. As C.S. Lewis observed, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. The depth of pride can vary from one person to the next and can be obvious or concealed. In the Old and New Testaments, it is a truism that God will not suffer the creature to exalt itself against the Creator. Pride provokes God's displeasure and He has committed Himself to oppose it. If your pride causes you to exalt yourself, you are painting a target on your back 
and inviting God to open fire, and he will. For he has declared his determination to bring it low wherever he finds it, whether among angels or humans, believers or unbelievers. It was pride that caused Lucifer to be cast out of heaven and Adam and Eve to be cast out of Eden. And it is pride that will be our undoing if we tolerate it in our lives. The danger of pride is a sobering reality that each of us needs to ponder. Truly, it is our greatest enemy. Admittedly, humility and the humbling of oneself is out of fashion in today's world and seems unappealing to most of us. However, as Jonathan Edwards said, we must view humility as one of the most essential things that characterizes true Christianity. Our perspective on humility can be radically changed if we ponder and meditate on the greatest example of humility in history, Jesus Christ. By the very act of leaving heaven, coming to earth, and taking the form of a man, he demonstrated an unfathomable humbling of himself. Throughout his life on earth, Jesus demonstrated a spirit of profound humility, saying that he came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. On his last night with the disciples, he took a towel and basin and washed their dirty feet, John 13, 1 through 11, instructing them to follow his example of servanthood with one another, John 13, 12 through 17. Andrew Murray captures it well. Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. The eternal love humbling itself, clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve and save us. The Apostle Paul may well have been thinking of this scene in the upper room when he urged the believers in Philippi, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped at, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Paul is here encouraging ordinary believers in a local church who apparently have some measure of sinful pride in their hearts and relationships to reflect on and adopt the attitude and actions of Jesus their Lord and follow his example of humility, end quote. It will be wise also if we follow Jesus Christ's example as well. Amen.